But while I move the podium, would you turn to Revelation 2? We're going to continue in our series on the seven letters with the second letter to the church in Smyrna. And I'll begin my reading at verse 8, and we'll conclude at verse 13. Actually, verse 11, not 13. 8 to 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Father, sobering words tonight, but hopeful words, grace-filled words. Let us hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. In Jesus' name. Well, this just in, CNN.com today. Al-Qaeda claims it killed American in Yemen. This was posted 1147 this morning. Gunmen shot dead an American teacher in the Yemeni province of Taiz on Sunday, two defense ministries officials said. If you don't know where Yemen is, it's in Saudi Arabia, right along the Arabian Sea there. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, the terror network's affiliate in Yemen, claimed responsibility for the killing. In a text message sent to Yemeni media outlets, the group said the victim was spreading Christianity to the Yemeni people, calling him one of the biggest missionaries in the country. Authorities have not said who killed the teacher, whom the head of security in the province identified as Joel Sharm. The article goes on to say, in Sunday's attack, two men on a motorcycle fired eight shots at the teacher who was on his way to work at a Swedish language center in the provincial capital, the defense ministry officials said. That's real, brothers and sisters. It happens every day, and it goes unreported over and over again. Sometimes we get it, but I heard it from John Piper, and he tweeted that this afternoon, and his tweet was, in the language of Jesus, some of you they will kill. And then he linked to the article. Joel was faithful unto death, and he has the crown of life, and we can be encouraged by that. But suffering is real. In fact, John Stott said that if the first mark of a true and living church is love, which we saw last week, the second is suffering. Last week we began a series of evening message on the subject, What Does Jesus Think of the Church?, through a study of the seven letters of Christ to the seven churches recorded in Revelation 2 and 3. We saw last week in our look at the seven churches in Ephesus that while they are hardworking, doctrinally sound, and persevering, they lacked practical love for others. They were consumed with their own concerns, so much so 
that they were not engaging the darkness. They had, in fact, sheltered themselves from it. They were a church more characterized by what they were against than what they were for, or who they were for. More committed to hating what God hates than loving what God loves. More committed to preservation than proclamation. And Jesus exhorted them to give the gospel away or lose it altogether. But this evening we find ourselves in the second letter, the letter to the church at Smyrna. And in this letter we find no complaint from the Lord about a lack of love from this church. In fact, we find no complaint at all. It's one of the two letters where we find no complaint from Jesus whatsoever. We'll get into why that may be a little bit later. What we find, though, is a description of the present struggles that are going on in this church, a prediction that future suffering is coming, and a word of strong encouragement to persevere in the midst of that coming suffering. The city of Smyrna was located about 35 miles north of Ephesus along the coast. So just a stone's throw away from the church that we heard about last week, 35 miles. It had a population of about 100,000 people. And it competed with Ephesus as sort of the jewel of Asia Minor, as one of those larger cities, just like Ephesus. In this letter addressed to the church in this city, we find them facing serious persecution. In the face of it, we also find the Lord Jesus offering strong, strong words of promise and encouragement to the suffering church. And we're going to explore this letter tonight under two points. The first is the pressures of persecution. And the second, the promises for persecution. So I want us to look at the five pressures that are on this church, the five ways this church is being assaulted by the devil, and then the five promises that God gives to that church to overcome those five pressures. Okay, so that's where we're going to go this evening. The five pressures and then the five promises for those pressures. We'll take them one at a time. Let's start with the first one, and it's given in verse 9. Where Jesus says, I know your tribulation. Tribulation. Tribulation can be translated any number of ways, difficulty or oppression or persecution even sometimes. But it's just sort of an all-encompassing junk drawer term for any serious form of difficulty. It's serious trouble. It's a crushing burden. It's being opposed. It's being hard-pressed. It's being in narrow straits. It's facing various forms of difficulty. So this church was facing tribulation. Matthew 13, 21, Jesus, talking about the parable of the sower, said, Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises, on account of the word, immediately falls away. So tribulation and persecution can sometimes be words that are interchangeable. But Romans 8, 35 says that not... That, that tribulation can, in fact, be a broader term that, not, that is not just limited to persecution. Remember the verse? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? In some sense, all those words are various forms of tribulation. They're various forms of difficulty and trouble. We don't know exactly what forms of tribulation the church in Smyrna was facing, but we know they were facing them in pretty heavy doses. The city of Smyrna had acquired some notoriety for its loyalty to the emperor. In fact, Smyrna had a temple built in honor of the Roman emperor in its city, and the Roman emperor was Tiberius. 
Loyalty was expressed at this temple by worshiping the statue to Tiberius, sprinkling incense on the fire, which before a statue of Tiberius as an act of worship to him. But the Christians recognized this as idolatry, and they would take no part in it. And as a result, Christians in Smyrna were seen as traitors to the empire and extremely unpatriotic. And they suffered for it because they knew that that was idolatry. They were not to be participating in such emperor worship. So tribulation is what they got as a result. Trouble, difficulty. Anytime we stand up and are uncompromising, we're going to get pushback. If it's a, whether it's at a national level or a personal level. Here it was at a more national level, and the Christians became known as those who wouldn't participate in the cultural activities of emperor worship, and they got pushback from people for it. The second pressure that they faced, not only tribulation, was poverty. You see that in verse 9 as well. I know your tribulation and your poverty. Now, the Greek here implies extreme poverty. This wasn't just middle class. This was difficult financial circumstances. And there are several possible reasons for why they might have been facing such poverty. No doubt, some of them could have been poor prior to the persecution. In fact, Jesus came for such poor people, right? 1 Corinthians one twenty six. not many of you were of noble birth when you were called. So Jesus, in fact, does save financially poor individuals. Could it be that they were also maybe extremely generous? They had made themselves poor because they were so financially giving, like, the, like in 2 Corinthians 8, where Paul commends the Macedonians for such generosity, generosity that though they were, in fact, poor, they were begging Paul to give another offering for the, for the saints in Jerusalem. Could that be a reason? Or could they have been faithful in their business practices? And it cost them. In fact, many, you know, um, so many businesses in those days were rooted in the ability to negotiate trade relationships. And if a certain group couldn't figure out a way to trade with each other, they wouldn't trade. Well, think about the views that the culture would have had of these Christians as they were faithful in their jobs and ethical in their standards. No doubt many Jews or pagans would not trade with them. They were cold-shouldered, and no, no, and it would be not hard to understand that if these Christians were going for a job somewhere, that they'd find no employment if people found out that they were Christians. But I don't think any of these reasons were the main reasons for the poverty recorded here. No doubt some of them were poor already. No doubt some of them had been generous. No doubt some of them, their faithfulness in their workplace had cost them financially. Maybe they didn't get that promotion. <laughs> that some others got because they were willing to bend the rules a little bit or break them all together. I think in the context that their poverty is the result of persecution, that their poverty is in fact a result of the tribulation they've been experiencing. You remember Hebrews chapter 10? Would you turn there with me? In Hebrews 10, we get a situation of poverty coming as a result of persecution. And no doubt, while we can't be for certain, because John doesn't give us any details about the poverty here. No doubt, this would in no doubt play a part in the reason for some of the poverty in the church in Smyrna. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, after you'd become a Christian, after the Holy Spirit had worked in your heart, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. That's what 
Smyrna's faces. Verse 33, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. So what was going on here? These Christians were facing public insult and also private and domestic persecution. Some of them were, they were identifying themselves with Christians in prison, which had to happen in those days because if the Christians who were in prison didn't have other Christians bringing them food, they starved to death. So to come out of hiding and to go to the prison on behalf of the Christians is basically to unite yourself with them and could put yourself in danger of being right next to them in chains. But these Christians went out, had compassion on their brothers and sisters who were stuck in prison, and while they were doing it, an angry mob came to their house and blew it up or took it all and threw it in the street or sold it. And they came back, and their property was gone, and now they find themselves poor because of their faithfulness to Jesus. No doubt that was going on in Smyrna, and no doubt many of the Christians there received that kind of treatment. They lost money, and they became poor due to their faithfulness to Jesus. That's the third pressure, or that's the second pressure. Now the third, tribulation, poverty, slander, slander. We see that again in verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Literally, blasphemy. What is slander? Slander is words that are spoken from someone that attacks the character of a person. These Christians were having lies spread about them, untrue rumors. They were being mocked for their faith in Christ, and they were having rumors spread behind their backs. They were being misunderstood and caricatured all over the place. Non-Christian Jews may have been trying to get Christians in trouble by saying that the church was not another Jewish sect, but in fact a non-Jewish cult. After all, they believed that the Jewish Messiah had been crucified. That's a cult if I've ever heard one, says the Jews. However, the Jews who rejected Jesus professed to worship God, but their opposition to Christ and his church showed that they were in fact under the control of satanic darkness. That's what, John, or that's what Jesus says to the church. They are in fact, though they say they are Jews, they are a synagogue of Satan. Behind all of their slander, was the great father of lies, speaking against the church at trying to destroy it with false accusations. Isn't this what Jesus said would happen to us and to the church? Matthew 5, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And it gets things, things said about you that are not true. John 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not above his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. 
John 16:33. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So this slander was coming against them. This blasphemous statements that were untrue, these rumors that were not true at all. Number four, the fourth pressure is imprisonment. They were facing jail time, some of them. Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Imagine you're the church and you hear that. After all that you've already been through, Jesus comes to the church and he says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know your slander. Imagine the church hearing that. Our Savior, he sympathizes. He understands. And in the very next sentence, that you're getting ready to go to prison. You're getting ready to go to prison. And the, the language is not pretty. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. It's going to be violent, and it's going to be satanic. And it's not going to be pretty. But it's going to happen. But don't be afraid what you're about. And then the fifth one, the fifth one is death. Here's the fifth pressure, death. Again, the end of verse 10, be faithful unto death. Martyrdom was a real and solemn possibility for this church. Some of them were going to be Joel Sharm. Now, the question to ask is, can we even identify with any of this whatsoever? Tribulation, poverty, slander, prison, death. I mean, we had a great church service this morning. We had a good lunch. Some of us got a great nap. And we're back here this evening under no threat of anything. And I don't think we should feel guilty about that. Okay? But I think some of us, not all of us, should be reminded in this text that there is a price to faithfulness. There is a price to pay for faithfulness. And it's going to look something like that. It's going to, I think the big thing we can pull back and take away is it's going to draw opposition from the world. That's what we learn. Not that necessarily you're not being faithful if you're not in prison next week. Some of you may be in prison next week because you were unfaithful. (laughs) You did something you shouldn't have. You know, you're not faithful unless you're dead by Friday. No, you could be unfaithful and be dead by Friday, driving drunk at 80 miles an hour. Like I heard yesterday, someone heard a story of someone living in Minnesota. That's nothing to do with Minnesotans, by the way. Um, but he said outside, it probably had to do with St. Patrick's Day more than anything, because, you know, we don't celebrate St. Patrick, the missionary to the Welsh. We celebrate St. Patrick by wearing green and getting drunk. Yeah. 
Well, he said, out in front of his house, 80 miles an hour, two cars going in front of each other and blew up, killed everybody. In front of his house, he's sitting in his living room looking out the window. I don't know where I was going with that, but where was I going with that? (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Unfaithfulness being the cause of death. Thanks, Jim. Um, But (laughs) there you go. And you're wearing green. Appreciate that. <laughs> but getting back to what we were saying, that that why is why is it that we don't receive the opposition from the world that the Bible tells us that we should expect? You know the verse, Second Timothy three twelve. Everyone, all those who live in a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So what's the implication? We're not as godly. That's if we were more godly, we would suffer more. Here's, here's what John Stott says. Listen to this quote. And just let it have its intended sobering effect on you. Don't let it crush you. Don't let it condemn you. But let it have its intended effect. Because I think it's a, it's a reminder to all of us that we are far too easy in compromise. Listen to what Stott says. He says, the ugly truth is we tend to avoid suffering by compromise. Our moral standards are often not noticeably higher than the standards of the world. Our lives, and here's the question, here's here's a good one. Our lives do not challenge or rebuke unbelievers by their integrity or purity or love. I mean, our lives don't, don't rebuke the world. Don't draw out. Opposition from the world. The world sees in us nothing to hate. As for the church, in many places, the world hardly notices it. It makes little impact on society. Its discipline is in many ways lax, and its commitment is half-hearted. We are seldom bold to rebuke sin. We mind our own business lest anyone be offended. We hold our tongue so that nobody is embarrassed. We are respectful, conventional, inoffensive, and ineffective. I think that is our problem. We're respectful and we're conventional. And as a result, we're inoffensive and we're ineffective. Now, I know that so often people have taken statements like that I just read from John Stott about our moral standards often being not noticeably higher than the standards of the world, and they go out and they take that and they go away to be a jerk for Jesus and to go point out people and sound like a Pharisee, and that's not what I'm talking about doing. Going to work and just pointing your finger at everybody and being that judgmental guy, coming off sounding like a moralist, not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about asking questions that are provocative. I'm talking about saying things in humble ways that challenge people. That as you're standing there talking to that unbelieving guy who just said GD, for the fifth time while you're talking to him, 
and saying lovingly, but lovingly, does that not bother you? Or whatever. Smyrna was a suffering church because it was an uncompromising church. Or here's another way that just came to my mind. You know that, that situation. There's situations that sometimes pop up in our lives where if we rock the boat in that area, we're going to get the backlash of everybody. I'm not thinking of anything in spe- specifically. I know there are areas in, in my life and in my job and in but and those who I'm called to be around. But there are there are areas of our lives that if we were to if we were to enter into that with Christian love, compassion, integrity, we would get the backlash of people who don't want that boat rocked, who would prefer that that not be done because it's going to affect them in some way. It's going gonna, it's gonna to inconvenience them in some way. So you sort of get the backlash of, of their anger because now you've disrupted something that they were in the habit of doing that was not a problem for them, but now the Christian comes along, and it's not so much what he said to me, it's what he did to somebody else that inconvenienced me. That sometimes happens, too. I think in some ways that's what Smyrna was doing. You think about the emperor worship that was going on all over that city and the fact that the Christians were unwilling to take part in it, and it got the backlash of others because now the whole city isn't joining in on this, so that creates problems for the whole city because they want everybody in. They want to be seen and known as for this, and these Christians are holding them back from getting the quote-unquote worship from the other cities in Asia Minor that they want. They want to be known as those who are for the emperor and love the emperor and support the emperor, and the Christians were giving them none of it. And so they looked at them and said, you guys, we're not going to let you get away with that. So Smyrna was a suffering church because it was an uncompromising church. So those are some of the pressures it faced. Now, let's move quickly into the promises. The promises that Jesus gives this suffering church. In the face of this persecution, Jesus offers specific promises to the church to supply them with faith to conquer in the face of fear. Now notice this, and this is so, so wonderful. There is no word of correction given by Jesus here. Now, no doubt they needed some. They are afraid. Okay? Jesus could have come to them and said, I died for you. I suffered for you. I told you this was coming. Repent of your fear. He could have said that. No doubt this church had its issues. All churches do. They were fearful, but Jesus is so tender and sympathetic toward his suffering people. He is not a taskmaster who comes to his churches and whips them, but rather he's a savior who carries them, especially those who are suffering for him the most. In this letter, Jesus gives them the shortest letter of all seven, and he gives them the warmest praise for all, from all, than all seven. And I think it's because of this. 
because the heart of Christ is incredibly, it bleeds when his church suffers. It bleeds. And I don't think that's an overstatement at all. Because when Jesus confronts Saul on the road to Damascus, and he says, why are you persecuting me? Because he's killing his people. And that, above all else, draws out the tender, sympathetic love of Jesus. And aren't we thankful? Aren't we thankful? That in the midst of great suffering, in in suffering in our lives, should suffering come, that there you will not meet a taskmaster who has come to whip you. You will find a Savior who will sympathize with you, cry with you, and carry you. That is who Jesus is to his suffering, hurting people. They receive receive the shortest letter and the warmest praise, and he gives them unbelievable promises. And let's look at them one at a time. The first one is the promise for tribulation, and it's in verse 9. And it's just two simple words, I know. I know. Those can be some of the most Precious words you can hear when you're suffering. To have someone come to you and look you in the eye and just say, I know. But to have Jesus come to you and twice in this verse say, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty. I know the slander of others. To have Jesus come and say that to you means that you can be absolutely certain that Jesus is with you. That he is taking note of all that is happening. And he is totally aware of every tear that's fallen, of every good that you've lost, of every price that you've paid. He knows. And he's there. And that is, that's wonderful. I know, Jesus says, your tribulation. I'm aware of it. In fact, I'm sovereign over it and deeply involved in it for your good and my glory. Second, we have the, the promise for poverty. Notice what Jesus says. I know your tribulation and your poverty. Then in parentheses in the ESV, but you are rich. You are rich. Now, this is obviously not money. I have no idea what health, health and wealth preachers would do with this. <laughs> what, would, what do they do with a letter like this? It's not money. Okay? They're poor. It's clear. And what is implied? They are rich in all the ways that matter. They are spiritually rich. Second Corinthians 8 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Rich for God, Luke 12, 21. Rich in faith, James 2, 5. Rich in good deeds, 1 Timothy 6, 18. Have treasure in heaven, Matthew 6, 19 and 20. Possessing the unsearchable riches of Christ, Ephesians 3, 8. And in the language of 2 Corinthians 6.10, this church has nothing and yet possesses everything. Everything. Their bank account in the things that matter is full. 
They are trillionaires in the things that matter. To the world, as the world looks on, this was like the most decrepit, pitiful, sorry group of people you've ever seen. If Jesus were to pull back the veil, speed speed up history by a thousand years, let them see those people now, it would be a much different story. Much different story. They have nothing, but they possess everything. They are rich. And that's Jesus' promise to them. Don't look at your physical circumstances. Think of your spiritual circumstances. Think of what you have in me. You have everything you need in me. You are rich in all the things that matter. And I know your tribulation. So those are the first two promises. Third promise is for the slander that they're receiving. Verse 9, the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, isn't it great what Jesus does here? He comes along and he says, I know what these Jews are saying to you and about you. It's all untrue. It's all untrue. That is so refreshing to hear, isn't it? Have you ever been slandered? Have you ever had something said about you that wasn't true and somebody else come to the rescue and defend you? And you be vindicated? That is wonderful. There are a few things like it in this life. To have something that was spoken against you maliciously, out of ill intent, and to have someone else come along and say, that's all false, don't listen to them. Not true. And that's what Jesus says to this church. He says, I know what they're saying about you, and it's unjust and it's wrong. Because you know why? They're not true Jews. You are. They're satanic. You're the true Israel of God. They say the Christians are poor. They're not poor. They say the Christians are wrong. They're not wrong. They say the Christians are against them. They're not against them. They're more for them than anybody else. Just not in the ways they want. So he says to them, these Jews are not true Jews. They're a synagogue of Satan. They're, used, they're doing the devil's work. And don't listen to what they're saying about you. And count it as true in your case. In both their judgments and their actions, they are mistaken about you. Then let us not be too greatly concerned by the opinions of unbelievers, brothers and sisters. Just don't let it get you down. Only Christ's perspective matters. And even if there is some truth in what they're saying, and sometimes there is, sometimes it's our sin that's true, what does Christ say about your sin? Not what do they say about your sin. Christ says, I forgive you. I love you. This is the cup of the new covenant shed for the remission of sin. I've given it to you. Believe that. Even if your sin played a part, which we have no record of here, but sometimes it does. So in the midst of slander, he reminds them it's not true. Imprisonment. Imprisonment was the fourth pressure. And what does he say to them here? He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. And then he says, it's only going to be some of you, not all of you. Notice that. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. It's only some of you. And it's only 
temporary. I think that's what the phrase 10 days means. It's not like 10 specific days. We know that numbers in the book of Revelation are always symbolic. They're figurative. And it means a short period of time. It's going to be temporary. Both the number of people who are going to prison as well as 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 how long they're going to stay there is limited. It's not going to be forever. It's going to be for a period of time. And notice this. It's purposeful. I have a purpose in it that you may be tested, verse 10. That's it. So we've got a sovereign Jesus who is using this imprisonment for the good of those people. The suffering for the Christians has a definite limit. It will come to an end. And this temporary imprisonment may result in release or it may result in something better. Martyrdom. And this is what he gives. This is, these are the words of comfort he gives to those who are facing death. He gives two words of comfort. End of verse 10. Be faithful unto death. I will, first of all, give you the crown of life. And then the end of verse 11, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, the crown of life, symbolic for a wreath of victory. It's eternal life. And the second death is symbolic, according to Revelation 20, verse 6, and 14, and 21, 8, for eternal punishment, for the lake of fire, for the place of eternal torment, for those who do not know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, you will be transferred out of this life into life eternal, and you will not even be touched by the judgment of the second death. The Christians in Smyrna may have to face the first death, but they will escape the second death. They will not be harmed. That phrase, you will not be hurt, is actually a double negative that says you will, in fact, never even be touched by the second death. It's going to have no relationship to you whatsoever. Now, the question to ask as I close is how can we be sure of all of this? How can we be sure of these promises that they're going to actually come true, that that this church can actually look at Jesus and say, yes, in the midst of our tribulation, poverty, slander, imprisonment, and death, all the things that you have said are true for us. How can they know that? Because of what Jesus says in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. The resurrection ensures that all these promises will be true in their case, even the worst situation, which is in their mind, which is death. He says, Jesus says, I've already defeated it. I've already come back to life. I've already passed through that gate. And your trust in me will not fail you in the end. So lay hold, he says to church in Smyrna, and I say to you tonight, intentionally lay hold on the future, brothers and sisters, and impose it on the present in your life. That's what we need to do. Whether or not this week brings us any forms of this, any forms of opposition because of our faithfulness to Christ, we have to take those future promises, think about these things, meditate on them, and impose them upon the present. And as we do that, we will conquer. We will conquer. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us this portion of your word. It's a sobering text. It's 
a, a text that reminds us of the cross that we all pledged to take up and carry by your grace when we came to you. It's these kinds of things that, G, that remind us of why Jesus said, count the cost. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. Father, the reality is, is that as our world continues to go the way it's going and evil continues to go unchecked and we continue to look more and more like Rome, the reality of these kinds of things is going to be happening, maybe even in our own generation. It's hard for us to think about that. It's hard for us to dream about that, even think of something like that happening. But, oh, God, help us never to presume. Help us to always remember that there is a cross to be carried. But you give grace to carry it all the way to the end. So help us never to dodge it. Help us to, in the words of our, in the words of our Savior, to take up that cross daily.